today's Soundaround podcast, we have David Cadell. He's an LA-based music composer for film and TV, and he also has a master's degree in film production and has worked in the sound department and uh, edited and directed. And so he's got a lot of video experience, which is really exciting. So we want to talk to him about that today. David, mm-hmm. welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Yeah, man. Thanks for coming on. Could you tell us about how you got started in the video side? Yeah. So, I mean, ever since I was a, a kid, I think we got a, a video, you know, camcorder, eight millimeter when I was, I don't know, fourth grade and immediately just fell in love with, you know, the gadgetry of it and everything. I've always been interested in tech and, and, and videography. So from a young age, like I was just starting to make little videos and home movies and like my sister would be in the movie and stuff and my my folks. And I pretty much knew at that age, I I wanted to be a video producer or director or cinematographer, you know, so basically went to film school, went to, you know, my college degree was in uh, communication, you know, my my bachelor degree from Cal State San Bernardino. And then um, after I graduated, I was, I had done like some, some films and a lot of video stuff. And I wasn't really quite ready to go out and, you know, do a career yet. So I went into, I went to film school at San Diego State to get my master's degree. And that way I could really figure out what I wanted to do. So yeah, it was a great program. Spent two years there. After that, I I noticed as I was doing, I kind of did a lot of different things, directing, editing, cinematography, sound, um, and music as well. I started doing scoring some short films uh, and student films while I was in school too. But at some point I had to pick what what was I going to actually pursue as a career uh, sure. out of all those disciplines. So post-production, like editing and sound editing were the, uh, and music were the three things that I really enjoyed the most. So did a lot of s- sound editing for student films. I was like the guy that did sound editing. I ended up basically applying for the television uh, academies, Emmy, you know, the people that do the Emmy Awards. They have a summer internship program. And uh, it's supposed to be like one of the, you know, best internships for film industry stuff. And I ended up winning the sound editing internship that put me at this company called Sound Deluxe that ended up doing, um, you know, a lot of big movies. They were like they were like one of the big post-production sound houses in L.A. And after the summer, I ended up being hired on as a nighttime assistant sound editor. So like after a couple of months, I was loading the dialogue from the field from like Gladiator and Hannibal and all these like, you know, amazing movies. And so I was, it was exciting. And you were working nights? Yeah. So I was working 6 p.m. to 4 a.m. That was my shift. Um, and it's kind of like the last, like when I started, everything wasn't quite on Pro Tools yet. They were still using this old system called Waveframe that was like super slow. It would take all, it would take eight hours to copy like one reel of dialogue. So, oh, wow. so they needed somebody basically to be, to be there at nighttime. And I'd be like the only one in this whole building. I mean, I'd be taking hard drives to all the different editing systems and like starting copies so that when the uh, dialogue editors came in the morning and the effects editors, um, their systems would be ready to go. Yeah, that was like my first job in the movie industry. Cutting your teeth. I like it. Yeah. So you, yeah. Do, you do wear several different hats. Would you say the uh, the movie Super 8 is accurate to your your like homemade movies on the recorder? Yes, yes. I would say, yeah, for sure. I mean, I don't have anything that great, you know, I would say from that early age, it was a lot of home movies and, you know, it was like 
You don't want to, yeah, you don't want to rest on your laurels from when you were nine years old, right? <laughs> you want to be showing people that real. Yeah, but it was definitely like, yeah, I, this is this is what I want to do, you know, when I get older. What were some of the movies that you were into as a kid? Oh, good question. Um, everything from like Spielberg to um, you know, like all the popular movies of the time, Jurassic Park. And what's one movie you think you've watched the most? So like one movie that it's funny because it's like I always say it's my favorite movie, it's Schindler's List, which is. Oh. It is a downer. It's like, it's a heavy movie, but mm -hmm. um, I just love the whole, the craft of it, the story, you know, the, the black and white, the, the, of course the score is like one of my favorite scores of all time. Yeah. So I remember watching that. I think I was in seventh or eighth grade and we took a, it was a school trip and it was like probably not the most appropriate age to take a, a group, you know, cause there's some, you know, some interesting scenes and there's some, you know, tough scenes in there. So yes. And and there's some like some giggling from you know some immature you know middle schoolers and stuff, but by the end of it, I think everyone was just like, whoa, okay, you know. So it really it's heavy. It has that such a great impact. So yeah, so I mean that was one of my favorite movies, and, and I remember showing it to to our kids, and they're like, this is the movie that you said you know was so great. You know, I said, well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you'll understand when you're something older. uplifting. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, right after that, you got to go like put on a Pixar movie or something to like lighten the mood. You're like, all right, yeah, let's uh, let's put on something a little bit more cheerful now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they were older at this point too, but yeah, exactly. Yeah, like like how you feel about that movie like makes me think like that's what I love I love about the Elephant Man. It's just one of those like you know same kind of black and white, super great soundtrack, but just man, it's heavy. It's sad. Yeah, it's a sad, sad movie, but just like man. And then, uh, of course, some of my lighter, more movies that I liked as well were like Groundhog Day and and uh, that oh, one yeah. we watch all the time. Elf and you know all those those kind of movies too. So I kind of do love comedy as well. So it's not just all doom and gloom, but yeah, Groundhog Day is a good one. That's one of those movies that you don't really hear a lot of people talking about unless they're probably like around our age or something. Yeah, but yeah. Like yeah. a lot of times, people are just like, I don't know. Nathan, have you seen Groundhog Day? Is that is that on your list? I have seen it. Nice, nice. But it was recently. I didn't watch it as a kid. Oh, uh, okay. So on the on the sound editing front, like a lot of sound editors don't really have music chops. So how did you get the the music side of things going? Yeah. So. Well, one interesting thing that I've actually discovered when I was um, working as an assistant sound editor was a lot of the actual sound editors were in bands and they were like they were musicians. Um, so I think there is some sort of relation overlap. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. But they're they're not doing it say professionally. But um, you know, going back to being in film school, scoring short films and student films, and it was something that. I did that I really enjoyed, but I never, I didn't pursue it as a career because for some odd reason, I just, I didn't go to music school. I didn't, I didn't go that route. And I, I had this idea in my head that you had to be, you had to attend a, a you know, Berkeley or, or, you know, a, a music school, I have to have a music degree to be a composer. Mm -hmm. um, now I know is not true, but at the time that was kind of my thought. So I went into as an assistant sound editor and basically decided I was going to work my way up to become a sound designer. And that was the goal at that point. And I ended up working, yeah, about 25 different films as an assistant. And I did a lot of stuff on the dialogue um, side of it. So there's a lot of specialties, like a lot of sound editors become dialogue editors. And then some are focusing on sound effects. And then the sound designers are the ones who like create, you know, original sounds for the film. So yeah, after about seven years of that, I kind of started to feel like that was too like 
specific and I wanted to be more broad. I still love the whole filmmaking process. I, I like being behind the camera. I liked directing. Yeah, that's kind of like I decided to get into video production again and go back to that aspect of it. Are you self-taught on the music stuff? Yeah, yeah. So I, I basically just kind of play by ear. So nice. my musical background is, you know, I started out, my my parents were in a choir at church. So I kind of like would see that. And then he was a guitar player. So, or he, yeah, he still is. But, and so they had guitar chord music. So that's kind of how I learned to play was it'd be the words and there'd be the guitar chords. So I would, you know, play my GC, you know, mm-hmm. it wasn't staff, you know, music, um, stuff like that. So I just kind of started out just basically playing by ear. And um, I was pretty good. I'm pretty good at figuring out, hearing things and figuring out how to play it. So in in high school, I played the clarinet and band. So I did kind of learn a little bit of that Mm -hmm. and then uh, ended up playing the drums later in life. Yeah. So I was exposed to music a lot and it was around music, but never had that, you know, official lesson basically and the modes and the scales and all that stuff, you know. Sure. Did you like, did you eventually just like try teaching yourself modes and all that stuff or sort of like wanting to dive into more music theory on your own or? Lately I have. Yeah. Lately I definitely feel like, okay, I need to, this is stuff that would be helpful to learn. So mm-hmm. I'm still always learning stuff as I go and kind of breaking out of some of those, just try, you know, basically trying to learn more, more about it as I go. But, mm-hmm. and as you write music, you, you've just find yourself learning it, you know, like, oh, it's funny because I'm like, most of it is discovering stuff that I already know, like intrinsically, I know that this is what this is. Yeah. What One thing that I found really interesting, and I think it, it's because I'm very much like you and the whole, like I, you know, just self-taught. And I, one thing I've always thought was an interesting concept was uh, this dude named JJ Berthume, I think is how you say his name. And he was talking about this concept called, uh, what was it? Like uh, harmonic relativity or something like that. Like just like the sound of like a major chord playing on, you know, like on C and then playing it up like a fifth up and then going back and just like how those two chords sound together. Like, oh, it sounds very uplifting or sounds very like heroic. And I love that kind of stuff because it's very like easy to attach like a feeling to it because like theory and stuff is cool. But like, I think at the end of the day, like having a good ear, like, like how you're saying, like you can hear something and figure it out. That's almost, you know, just as powerful as being like, well, you know, the the fifth degree and the blah, blah, blah. I mean, like watching like a Rick Beato video, like that stuff's cool to know. But for most people, it's just like they forget that and they just kind of go with like they know with creating the feeling, you know. Yeah. And, you know, and those types of concepts, I think, are really interesting because it's very like easy to get like, oh, this like, you know, this sounds dark and brooding, like taking a minor chord and then moving that minor chord down a half step and just like, oh, wow. Like, like, I love that kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. It's a lot of just experimentation and you find, oh, these two chords has this this sound that they go together. Mm-hmm. And then that, and then I those get added to my, you know, internal dictionary of chords. And, and that's kind of how how I go. So what have you been doing lately since you've been doing more of the uh, like film film composing and stuff like how have you been developing your chops in a more of a, you know, doing it professionally more and more? So the benefit of having that experience of doing video production and doing uh, sound editing was I developed a really good ear. So as far as because when I'm making videos, I'm all I'm placing the music into into the into the video. So I kind of know okay, here it needs to be kind of quiet. I don't want to interrupt the dialogue. Here I need it to stop. Silence here would be good. Okay, here's a big moment. 
So all that stuff kind of like subconsciously has entered into my into my brain. So when it comes to writing music, all the the spotting the scene and all that part comes really naturally. So that really has helped. And so the the part that I needed still was just I needed to do additional writing so that I could learn from a composer and know, okay, this is what they want delivered. These are the stems. How do you deliver to an orchestrator so that they can have it played by a real orchestra? And, and a little bit of, you know, the right ranges for the instruments, because when you, you get really uh, spoiled by the MIDI, because you start writing stuff, there's really no limitation. So mm-hmm. I think one of the parts that I wrote uh, early on was a French horn part. And it, we came, we went to go record it. And, you know, it was like, actually, this is a really high part that probably if this was in London would have been fine. But, you know, this is recording, you know, somewhere else. And maybe they're not quite can't hit that note, you know, so. Mm. Um, so there's things like that, that I've been learning of like making sure it's, it's playable, making sure that a woodwind player can have time to breathe, you know, and, uh, things like that. So, mm-hmm. um, when I started writing for films professionally, I started re- having to learn like how, how fast do I need to write, you know, how quickly, cause that's always a big concern too, is, you know, can I, can I write quick enough? Cause there's all these numbers thrown away around, like, I write five minutes a day or I write one minute a day or two minutes a day. And mm-hmm. that was like a concern. Can I, is the speed there? And luckily so far, that part hasn't really been an issue. So I think I was worried about it more than it what really was an issue. So yeah, so that's kind of what I've been been learning. Like how much have you been finding yourself able to write in within like a certain time span? Some of the first additional writing I did was with Anne Catherine Dern. Um, a lot of people know who she is. So, mm-hmm. but uh so the first movie I did with her was a horror movie called uh, The Devil Conspiracy. And uh, so the first cue I did, it was, um, I think she kind of explained that story, how we got to work together on on, on the podcast that she did with you guys mm-hmm. too. But um, but yeah, essentially, um, I was probably able to write a couple minutes a day, and, and that was enough to stay on the schedule. Mm-hmm. But that music was really... Um, it's so a very sound designy in some ways. It was a lot of pads and weird noises and and stuff like that. So it was I wouldn't say it's not it's not easier by any means, but it's just a different type of writing. And then yeah. the stuff with like now I'm working on the Claus family and that stuff takes longer. So I don't know. I, I hate to throw out a number cuz it de- really depends on the scene, but yeah. I'll just say it definitely takes longer to write these kind of really lushly orchestrated where, you know, okay, you need woodwinds, you need strings, you need brass, you need percussion, you need everything in there versus some of the horror music, you know, you can just draw a line with the pad and then add some little accents and blend stuff and, you know, it can, can go quicker. Yeah, it's it's like they they both have their tough tough things because it's like with the horror stuff it's more about finding the right sound you know yes. in your you have a huge arsenal of of different sounds that would work for 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 a horror thing but it's like finding the right one that kind of like hits all those points that you're looking for and then yeah the orchestra is just writing for an orchestra is never uh, a quick thing unless you're just like all right you know doing like these like ensemble patches boom 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 all right cool like i just i don't really care but yeah like writing it for each player yeah that's yeah that's definitely going to take some time yeah yeah it gets faster the more you do it. Then you have to consider like, yeah, the the playability of it. You have to put in, build in time to do your MIDI prep and and to get it ready for the orchestrator and all that stuff too. So if you're not sending it out to be recorded and then you're just staying in the box, it, it does go quicker because then you're basically, you're just printing your stems and you're done. So mm-hmm. do you have any, any tips as far as like, do you sort of 
try to prep the MIDI to where once you're you're done and it's approved, that the MIDI is kind of like ready for an orchestrator? Like, do you quantize everything? Because I know like you're big into the like the delay compensations and all that stuff. So just being able to like have all that stuff quantized, because, you know, like sometimes you play something in and the dragging stuff back, because I've always heard that is kind of a pain for some people having to go back and fix MIDI and and all that, because it'll look wacky on us on a staff. Yeah, yeah, it definitely helps because I do quantize everything. So yeah, so it, it definitely goes a lot faster when you do that. And then then you just have to get rid of the overlaps and stuff like that. And then those first notes that get pushed forward a little bit because of the timing of the legatos, you just have to put the, you know, quantize those again. So and it's also mostly it's a lot of just making sure I cleaned everything up that it's not too sloppy mm-hmm. because um yeah, sometimes I'm just I'm 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 more interested as in, in my train of thought consciousness of like let me get this part down and oh let me wait okay that's the clarinet let me let me try this on the oboe and then so I don't maybe at that moment I don't want to go there and clean up the clarinet part I just go you know and um, sometimes I I do that I just put stuff down roughly and then I go back later and clean it all up and make it look nice because the other thing too is like you know the first thing I want to do is get get the cue approved or get it sent off. The danger is if you spend too much time getting it all cleaned up and then it comes back and is not approved, then you're like, well, that was a waste of time. So exactly. So sometimes working as an additional writer too, it's like I can send something off to like Anne, for example, and I'll say, hey, this is kind of like what I'm thinking. This is still rough, this part here. Ignore, ignore this. You know, is this just the right approach or is this totally off from what, you know, what you Mm -hmm. think? Yeah, just to kind of see if you're in the ballpark, like, all right, cool. Like, should I move forward with this idea or am I just kind of... Especially if you want to do something kind of different. That's the other thing is being an additional writer. It's like the goal is to make it sound like you are writing, you know, it's the, it's the, it's the themes, it's the ideas of the main composer. But, you know, there's certain times when, you know, if the scene calls for it, it's like, well, what if we try this, uh, you know, with the, with the theme and do something a little out there. There's one cue I did on the Claus family too, where we kind of like took the themes, but we, it was like a spy. These elves are like sneaking around. So we thought, well, what, what if we try to like make this into a mission impossible type of cue, you know? So Mm -hmm. really leaned into the, into the five, four, uh, you know, time signature and everything, but use the themes that Anne had written, but in that framework of, you know, mission impossible, I was like, well, I'm just going to go for it. Let's just see, you know, so mm-hmm. it's fun. And that ended up being like probably one of the best cues that I wrote for that film because it it was one where I really just kind of went a little, not off, a little off script, you know? Yeah. Like you felt, you felt like this is something that could possibly work. Maybe they weren't really asking for it, but well, that's always cool when, when you kind of follow your heart on an idea and, and they're actually like, wait, that's, that's actually a really, really good idea. We never thought about that or, you know, that's cool. Yeah. That's the. That's the thing like I've learned as being an additional writer is you like when I first started out, I was like, let me just copy the MIDI exactly as is. And I'll just recreate it with the same instruments and and make it sound. But at that point, you know, you might as well just music edit, you know, the scene because it's going to sound exactly the same. So you have to bring something, something different, you know, so you have to fit it to the scene for one. And then, you know, a lot of times the instrumentation is too big. So it's like, actually, we just need a few a few woodwinds we don't need you know all the strings you know we can get by with just a few little parts so i mean i guess it's no different whether you're an additional writer or you're a composer but it's just you know i think that's just part of doing your job well is that you're you're being hired to assist and help the composer take things off of their plate that but still do it as if 
it was them writing it the whole time. When when you tend to start on a project, do you normally like is there do you orchestrate individual instruments or do you just kind of like kind of blunt force it with like ensembles and stuff just to kind of like get the idea before approval before then oh okay now I'm going to orchestrate every instrument or how do you normally work? I usually start like if I'm starting from scratch, I like to use the piano and just kind of sketch stuff out, just chords and like a melody. And I will sometimes like even if I if I use specific instruments to just get a motif or what if I use the strings and do something here? What about a horn part? Once I figure out that initial idea, then I still go back to the piano because I need to structure it out to fit the scene, to figure out where I'm going, what are the beats in the scene? Because if you don't, if I find if I don't like structure it out, I'll just I'll just waste time like, you know, messing around with what if I do this? What if I do that? But you need that structure to give you, you know, to to keep pushing you forward. And I think too, it helps you develop a melody. It helps you develop, you know, something. If if it's also for just a sample library demo that I'm writing, I'll I'll still start out with like, what's the structure? What's the melody of the song? It's almost like a pop song in a way. That's kind of how I think of it. So I try to make my music something that's enjoyable to listen to. So you know, if it's just a simple melody to latch on to or something, it's almost like a verse chorus kind of a mentality that I that I use for a lot of things. So that's kind of like a philosophy that I I definitely try to like something that I advise people who are starting out is like, think of it like a pop song, you know, and that makes it more interesting to listen to. Yeah, especially if you come from more of like a songwriter background, it's something you already know. So it's kind of working off of stuff that you have a grasp on versus just kind of trying to, you know, like Mickey Mouse, a whole scene or something like, oh, you got it. I feel like I need to hit every little thing or, you know, that sort of thing. And it just kind of sounds a little choppy or just kind of disjointed. Yeah. Are you writing to picture when you're like just uh, noodling on the piano? If I'm writing like for a movie, of course I'm not. But if I'm doing like a, a sample library demo or just a track, uh, generally I don't write to picture, although I think it's it's not a bad idea at least or maybe just an image to come up to help you come up with an idea sure because i find those are the hardest things to write are those like for example sometimes i'll do uh, demos for orchestral tools for new sample library and those are i find are really tough because just coming up with that initial idea of like what is this cuz a lot of times they give me a really broad Thing of like you know they'll do they'll say like uh, do something like John Williams or you know do um there was one they did they said kind of do like something like maybe Sherlocky actually that was a little bit helpful because they're like okay Sherlock uh, there's a certain you know palette that I can draw from to to help with that so yeah instead of saying do some Hans Zimmer stuff like well okay like which, which movie it's all like, you want Lion King or do you you know <laughs> yeah yeah. So some framework does help. So yeah, actually, I mean, uh, writing to a picture or else just even a, an image or something like just mm-hmm. to kind of frame it helps. That's crazy. I just recently saw, uh, I, have you ever seen the movie Radio Flyer? Um, no. I did not know that that was Hans Zimmer. This is like a, a quick little random side note. But yeah, I was like listening because uh, me and my girlfriend were like, oh, like the music for this is really good. I was like, and I was thinking, I was like, this almost kind of like, has like some Jerry Goldsmith or something. That was like my first guess, but then it was actually Hans Zimmer. I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, it's like yeah. an old, old movie from when I was a kid. Random. Yeah, I don't have to, <laughs> have to check that one out. I, I The first Hans Zimmer score I remember was Driving Miss Daisy, which I was a clarinet player in high school. And I think that came out like right when I was learning the clarinet. So I was like, yes, you know, finally a lead, you know, role for 
clarinet and uh, <laughs> a great movie too. And, and then that was like, you know, then he had Lion King, you had uh, Crimson Tide was like, oh man, I was just on repeat all the time. Those, those action movies, those, you know, Jerry Bruckheimer kind of, mm-hmm. those, that was my jam. You know, I was like, oh, this is awesome. I always cut those in as temp into my, you know, films and stuff like that too. So oh, that's cool. So let's talk about your YouTube channel. I got to watch your composers out of the studio, which is a very clever name, uh, with the with Brandon Campbell, and I loved that video, man. It was awesome. <laughs> yeah, I think Thank it's a you. great concept. Honestly, it's like, yeah, well, like we're always in the studio. So you were like, you know what? No, I'm flipping the script on this one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, what's what's fun about that is I think people you you take for granted that like you you're in an area and and it's kind of just like going out in California and checking out these cool areas. And cause I love seeing videos of other places in the world that I haven't been, you know, like, like I'll, I'll just click on a video of Finland and randomly watch that and <laughs> Estonia. And like, so for that, it's like, you realize people are all over the world. They can, they, they're interested in seeing LA and California. And so yeah. it's a good, it's a good way to kind of just show off the beauty of California and also just, um, just a different setting. I just love to meet, and talk with composers and I always learn something. So that was really the, the, the concept of that. They're a blast. I'd like to continue to do, to do more of them. The, the only thing is they do take a long time to put those together. So oh, yeah. they're like, I'm like, this could be a, a cable show because <laughs> they're like 30 minutes and mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's um, a lot of editing and stuff. So that's the only challenge is keeping that up. Um, I, I might try to do like one every three months or so just to, you know, just so I can continue to do it. Give yourself a reason to get outside and yeah. interact with some people and, <laughs> and and see people, you know, outside of their Cause you, you know, there's a lot of interviews that you, where you see people and they're like, you know, this is my gear and this is stuff. And I love that stuff too, but it's mm-hmm. something, you know, different. So are you shooting that with uh Sony a seven S three? Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I realized the first one we did was with Hal Rosenfeld, um, a, a percussionist and a composer. And that one, we did the whole thing. We were like on the gimbal, you know? Yeah. And so I have my, my, uh, my assistant who, who helps me with some of my video stuff, you know, by the end of it, he was like, okay, this is Dragon. way too long for, you know, hours holding the gimbal. Cause they, they get heavy after a oh, while. Man. So, mm-hmm. so we, uh, we realized, okay, we're going to, we're going to sit down, we'll set up the tripod and we'll just, but we'll go to some different locations. And so I already have another one, like kind of in the works with, uh, Christopher Carter, who, uh, does like the animated, Oh, the Batman stuff, Batman right? stuff. Yeah. 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 DC. And he is a pilot. So he's like, I want to take you up in my oh, wow. little private plane and we're going to fly like Catalina. So that's cool. And, uh, that's yeah. So like, okay, let's think of more ways to, you know, to do some dangerous stuff. So <laughs> you should, you should take a drone with you and just have it like fly with you side by side. <laughs> just like have it watching yeah. you the whole time. Yeah. It might yeah, be a little yeah. dangerous, but might maybe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I I do have to think of the logistics. Like, where am I gonna put the camera like in the plane? And can I hear anything while while we're yeah. flying? And probably have to yeah. bring a GoPro or something and just kind of like mount it up top. Like Chris and was it Becky and Chris, that one YouTube channel they the they helicopter. always do stuff with? Yeah. Yeah. Get yeah. a couple GoPros in there. Yeah. A friend of mine who actually helped me do some filming recently was telling me because uh, he has the same gimbal that um that Nathan has. And he was telling me a tip is he'll he'll rest it on his belt buckle and just kind of like and then hold it like that. And I was like, oh, okay. Cause I was like, damn, this thing is heavy. 
And he, yeah. he was just like, yeah, I just rested on my belt buckle and I just hold it like that. I'm like, oh, okay, that's a good idea. I got to remember that one. I've tried like filming it myself too. And I realized it's too hard to be concentrating on the filming and 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 also try to ask questions and stuff like that. So yeah. luckily I have somebody who can help me. Yeah, that's cool. It's uh, It's exhausting. I just went to Jason Graves studio and got to interview him and it was like, it was a full day and then I got Craig to edit it. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a lot of work. It's, and it, uh, I mean, you got to do it for the love of the game too. It's not really a, um, a monetary situation. I mean, you're not, you're not getting going stupid viral with it. Yeah. Well, that's the thing that I, I had to have a, just like a talk and, well, with an internal talk, I should say, is like, <laughs> do I really want to be? A, is it? Am I going to be a YouTuber? Or am I going to be a composer? Because you know, like with my video background, I could, you know, I could have a pretty awesome YouTube channel and just yeah. talk about oh, composing yeah. and everything. But that's not really my end goal. Is you know, I, what I really want to do is write music. So I do enjoy doing some of the videos and stuff like that. And yeah, I do. I've done a couple like things about negative track delays and stuff. And I definitely like I get a lot of people saying, hey, can you show me how you do your your mixing and can you show, show me this and that? But I kind of always have to restrain myself because because, um, you know, because then if you spend too much time doing that, then I become a, doing something I become a YouTuber at that point. And that's not really what I want to become, you know, long term. So, yeah, you yeah. got limited hours in the day. Yeah, it's yeah. Like- yeah, you got to reverse engineer it and think, oh, okay, like, where is the thing I want to be doing? Having these other outlets that lead to this thing. Like, if I'm doing YouTube stuff, like, how does it get people into, like, you know, seeing what I'm doing? Because I've heard a lot of people that say that, you know, like uh, Dirk was told us that he's gotten gigs by people just stumbling on his live streams on YouTube, you know, getting jobs doing stuff like that. So it, it's an interesting thing. It's almost like you're putting these little kind of advertisements for what you do out there, you know, and people can just randomly stumble upon it and that sort of thing. Yeah. I think it's great to have your music up. And I think that was, the, that's the main thing for me. And cause the, the, the funny thing is people don't actually really like to listen to music that much for, yeah. at least from my experience. Like if I post like one of my least performing videos on YouTube is like, here's my album and here's my, I have a new, you know, but people don't, really go to listen to the music but if i put it in a video or i do a little sample library demonstration then people are interested and they'll happen to hear it and then um you know so i just like to get my music out there and and be available for people so that's kind of like the thing yeah it's like a cool thing you can do is like going back to what you're saying how someone was like hey how did you do the mixing like doing something where here's a a song off this album showing some you know because i think a lot of times when people go to youtube they just either go to just like binge content or i think a lot of times people are using youtube just to learn so it's like if there's other people who are like you know coming across you and learning what you're doing and it's like oh like oh wow i didn't really know he he wrote this kind of stuff or something and they're learning because they just want to understand how you maybe approach mixing and especially on a, on a professional level, then it kind of like, oh, well, actually, now I do want to listen to his music. Like you, you kind of reel them in, in in one way versus just like, oh, here, listen to this or learn this. And then maybe you'll want to listen to that. So it's it, it's crazy how the funnel works. People getting into something. It's, it's, it's like that's where it's like people are playing around with how to get people to this place. Yeah, you have to you have to have a little bit of a presence because there's so many people that want to do this and you know, it just helps to have a little bit of recognition in the industry at least of like, oh yeah, I know I've heard his, you know, and that's kind of like how I got the gig with Ann too is 
I was just posting sample library demos and music and eventually she stumbled across it and then I was able to get a meeting with her and you know went from there but it, so it did it definitely helps to have some kind of a presence cuz otherwise if you're not on YouTube or you know then it's it's just harder for people to to just be out there I guess yeah, yeah. if you're in a cabin in the woods with no internet it's going to be hard <laughs> to find you yeah <laughs> yeah I mean unless that's what you're going for uh, yeah, one of the guys I follow, he says that every post is like a hook if you're fishing. And it's like, a, you know, every single video or Instagram post or whatever is like a fishing hook. And you're bringing people into your orbit, basically. And I think that is a pretty good summary of freelance work. I mean, especially any sort of video or like artist creative work is you need attention first. It's fun too, just to to have your work out there, and and I think the 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 challenge for me is always trying to do it in a way that is not braggadocious, or you know, there's the <laughs> whole thing, you know, like check out this thing I just wrote, and this, you know, and I try to there's like a fine line of like I want to share this, you know, but I'm not saying you know, look at me, I'm so great, you know, it's just here's yeah. here's stuff. That's always it, a challenge. <laughs> Especially in the composing world with like all these other people kind of doing the same thing. Like you get a lot of people who are all creative and write music and they're like, well, yeah, that's cool. But I wouldn't have done that with the French horns. I would have probably, you know, so it's like you also get that, too. So it's yeah. it's, it's interesting because I, I see a lot of people that want to share their music. But it, but then it, I think a lot of people just see that as like they're just kind of like trying. There's another guy trying to, you know, be on Facebook groups and be like, oh, I'm looking to a composing gig. How do I do that? And everyone's just like ready to just like smoke. Yeah, exactly. And it's, you know, and there's a lot of people that actually do want to help. Like, you know, there's a lot of people who are trying to kind of, you know, spread the info and stuff like that. But it's definitely... I think for some people it gets a little probably tiresome just because it's like everyone's trying to share their music and it just kind of gets lost or something. But it's like I'm just I just want to put it out there what I what I did, but it can uh it can get a little little crazy sometimes. Yeah, yeah, the internet. Well, the, the the other part of it is I think the important part is to show your personality and just to show that you're somebody that somebody wants to work with. And I think mm -hmm. that was that's the other part of why I do some YouTube videos is because. You know, when I went the whole Westworld thing, I had talked to some agents and or just for, for advice, you know, like, what what do you recommend? And, you know, one of the things I heard was, well, you know, the music is is a, is a part of it. Your music is important, but sadly, it's also a lot about, you know, you as a person and, and who you, you know, portray your, not portray yourself, but who you are and as somebody who wants that people want to work with. So mm -hmm. um, that's a whole, whole separate thing. But I think um, the fact is there's just so many great talented composers out there. So mm -hmm. why are you any different? You know, so focus on specific musical things, maybe that help you stand out, but also just show that, Hey, you know, I'd like to work with that person. Yeah. I, th I think it's definitely important to just kind of not feel like you need to do what everyone else is doing, especially when there's like certain trends in music or, you know, composing or trailer stuff or all that. It's like, you know, when you think about some of the people, you know, like Danny Elfman's and, and people like that, or people who kind of did things their own way because they didn't necessarily come from a school background. So they don't think like that. And I think those are the things that help you stand out is like, just kind of like, do you and not worry about what everyone else is doing. You know, of course, like there's certain things, you know, professionalism and, and certain aspects of that. But when it comes to like your style and what separates you you know obviously it's like you know you like my first impression i was like this is like the nicest guy ever 
you know, like, <laughs> like when we were hanging out, you know, a while back, I was just like, wow, like I could see why, you know, you, you've been kind of getting more composing gigs and doing cool stuff like that, because it's like, I could see why people would want to work with you because you're just super nice, dude. Aside from music, we're just hanging out or whatever, you know, and like, and I think <laughs> yeah, that yeah. that goes a long way, you know, having that is definitely, I think, a, a leg up in any kind of field, you know. I mean, I, something I learned kind of in between the sound editing phase and my current composing phase, I had years as doing video production and commercials and stuff. And I, at one point I, I ran a, compo uh, a video production team at a casino and I was hiring people. And one of the things I learned when I was hiring people was once I made the mistake of hiring the person that had the best reel, mm -hmm. but maybe, maybe wasn't the best fit for the team, the best, you know, like just cool to be with. Yeah. So, so that person, you know, shortly left because um, on their own accord, but you know, it was like, I realized the next time, like, I'm just going to hire the the person I really enjoy. Like, I'm just going to enjoy working with. And, and their reel was, was fine too. But you know, what I realized is that's, that's the thing, you know, I'll, I'll take the person that is, that I enjoy working with and we'll figure out, we'll figure out the, the video stuff, but that's, you know, versus the person who's got, you know, attitude like this, this, I'm too good for this. And, mm -hmm. you know, and that's something that I try to remember me as, as working with the team is, you know, I'm just going to be somebody who's easy to work with and um, makes people's lives easier. And whether you're the main composer and you're part of a team now where the director is hiring you, the producer, and it's, you're serving the story. It's not about your music. It's just about you being the right choice, right? Writing the right stuff for the, the film. Yeah. Is this person a good hang at 2 a.m. in the studio when we have a deadline? Yeah. Can I, can I rely on this person? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Especially if they're like complainer people, like those are the worst where they're just like, oh, like, oh God. Or, or, you know, how much longer, you know, you know, especially like I can honestly say um, doing the like the touring stuff too. like you, you learn a lot about people when you're cooped up in a van, that sort of thing. So it's like anytime <laughs> you're around people in closed spaces for long periods of time, you really start seeing people's true colors. So it's like, yeah, they definitely got to like not drive you crazy and be able to just laugh at stupid stuff for just no reason or whatever, you know, just kind of like break the, the stress and all that kind of thing. Yeah. So I think you're interesting because you have a film education first and then you kind of, uh, I don't want to say stumbled in, you got your foot in the door on the music side second. And so would you recommend a film education to composers? Because most people get a composition degree of some sort and then they kind of learn the film side of it and the spotting and all of that later. Um, so like, would you recommend people getting some sort of film education it doesn't necessarily have to be formal education but i think i think you should edit something you should actually go shoot and edit something especially and yeah. have to place music in the timeline around dialogue around you know a montage of images because that's that's where you learn immediately like what music works and what music doesn't and even like when you're placing um temp music on something you know you 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 just you, you find yourself like at least for me i was like this specific soundtrack is going to be the one and you realize you start searching and searching and you just can't find the right thing and that's when you realize okay actually writing a custom score is is always the best because no temp is going to hit every beat exactly the right way but mm -hmm. yeah so i would recommend you know not necessarily i mean you could take a film class you know in college or something like that or on online or but yeah, I think you should actually fire up iMovie or whatever it is and just 
go through that process because it just forces you to think at it from a different perspective. It's not not the composer perspective, you know, because you're you're more thinking about musical choices and you're not thinking about ultimately like what is the best thing for this scene. You know, that's one of the one of the most fun things for me is when I can actually stop and put no music in the scene, you know, hmm. and take these little pauses. Um, this happened in, in a, the Devil movie I worked with with Anne. There's one scene where crazy stuff's going on, and it's yeah, I don't know. I guess I can't give away exactly what happens. At one point, you know, I just like I had all this buildup of the music, and then I just went to silence. And then she makes she does this line, and I don't know if it was meant to be funny, but by stopping the music, and she delivers this line, it just it, it became like really funny, you know, and so. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just like that was the power of the music to make that just elevate that moment, you know. So mm-hmm. things like that are just, yeah, I think it definitely definitely helps. Yeah, it's kind of like the knowing when not to talk sort of thing. Yeah, like, and just kind of like understanding the power of of silences can be very powerful, especially in film, because I think a lot of times people are trying to like find, you know, where can I put the music? And it's like, you know, do you ever kind of go backwards and be like, okay, I know there's going to be nothing here. Or start writing music and and maybe put music there and then eventually just like take it out or or do you do you play around with it like yeah that? overwriting is always the you know the challenge because yeah a lot of times it's like oh, I it feels like you know I'll write something and I'm like oh, this doesn't seem like it's enough instruments like there's some rule like I should have I should have brass here because you know mm-hmm. I have it and they're going to be coming in the studio I need to record it you know and you realize I do that a lot I'll add something I'm like nope now now I'm hearing the clarinet and I'm not paying attention to what they're saying on the screen. So let me take the clarinet out. And sometimes this is like, Oh, you know, a couple of pizzicatos and that's all we need. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's um, stripping it back to, you know, just basic stuff is more often than not, that's the way to go really. Yeah. I think especially with, or- with orchestra, it just, you always have this wanting to like layer stuff. Like, um, did you ever see the, uh, I think it was the, it was like some kind of masterclass or, or mix masterclass with John Powell. And when you like look at his stems, like you'll see like there's like a chunk of stuff here in the strings. And then in the next part, you'll see a chunk of stuff in the brass. And it's very like, you know, you don't, it's not just like wave, you know, stems just like completely maxed out the whole time of just like constantly things going on. Yeah. And, and I yeah. thought that was really interesting. And in his, you know, orchestral stuff doesn't sound like it's lacking or missing anything. It's just arranged perfectly yeah you know and i thought that was really interesting it's like oh that's that's pretty cool it's like you know you'll see a little bit of things going on but it's it's not always just like we're all cylinders firing off at the same time kind of thing and i i think that's really interesting and that's why his stuff probably sounds very clean and easy to distinguish everything and all that sort of stuff yeah that's a perfect example of just like think of the music as just weaving it in with the soundtrack it's one part of the whole you know audible soundtrack that you hear when you watch a movie so it's got to be in in harmony with everything else the dialogue the sound effects and that's the the you know people like john powell that you know are masters at it they know exactly Mm -hmm. how to how to fit it in and he's probably one of those guys too i wouldn't i'd be curious to see if he sort of approaches it like how you were saying like the whole like verse chorus because his stuff is all super listenable you could yeah. just i i sit and we'll listen to how to train your dragon i think it's like the second one it's like the one that i really like it all sounds like you could just listen to it go to a concert and listen to all of it and and it sounds like you're listening to a piece that was just kind of written by itself 
And I, I, th I think I remember him saying that he kind of does that a little bit intentionally, like, you know, I want to write music, but it all sort of works together. And I'd be curious to see if he sort of approaches it in that sort of like song structure type way, because it definitely feels like it when you listen to it. Yeah, like a melody is not necessarily always a bad thing. It, it can actually help tell the story as well. Yeah, he finds ways of blending it in. And uh, I, I tend to write stuff that's very melodic, too. So I, I definitely appreciate that that aspect of it. And I think you can weave it in, even if it's subtly, you know, it's in the mm -hmm. background. Like um, the first time you see a certain character on the screen, it's like, yeah, let's just put the little hint of it maybe. And even if we can't, you know, put the huge fanfare, but put it in there a little bit and just, you know, I always like when I come out of a theater watching a film and you kind of know like, oh yeah, I can almost, I can remember some of the themes from a film. That's mm -hmm. obviously John Williams is a master of that. But the other thing that I always think about John Williams is everybody, um, as composers, we think about the complexity of his music and how it's structured and how it's just so much going on. And I think a lot of people try to imitate that, but I think sometimes it's loss of just the, the simplicity of the melodies that we remember, like Indiana Jones and, mm -hmm. you know, Star Wars. And it's not what, what makes it a hit with average people. Music fans like his music isn't, isn't the complex stuff. It's like, like that they can hum Indiana Jones when they get out of the theater. So. Mm -hmm. That's the thing I have to like fall back on me for me. Like, you know, I can't write like John Williams, so I'm never going to be able to write that, that like complex stuff, but I can maybe come up with an Indiana Jones melody at some point. And that dude's written so much memorable music. It's, but if you look at his sheet music, so many melodies are just octaves stacked of in, like various instruments playing that same melody and just like really hammering at home. Mm -hmm. And there's, it's not subtle. It's like, we really want you to know this part, you know, and that's cool. That's true. And I think uh, almost like sim simple, like on purpose, you know, exactly. Yeah. What are some bad recommendations you hear in your profession? Anything that, you've heard people say that are like tried and true and you're like, mm, no, not now that I'm doing it. Not just, yeah. Any but, hot, any hot takes you've got, you can drop. Yeah. Them right here. Yeah. I mean, um, the thing that I've learned in my experience is I wish I would have started a career as a film composer much earlier, but I didn't because I didn't think that I, because I didn't go to school for music and I didn't think that for whatever reason that I was going to be able to do it, you know? Yeah. You gate kept yourself. I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that was, it took winning Westworld competition for me to realize, Oh, okay. Maybe I can do this, you know? And, mm -hmm. And then you're constantly, yeah, I had to prove to myself that, okay, yeah, I've got the chops. And, you know, people that like these composers are telling me, yeah, your music is really good. And, but it was hard for me to believe it myself. So the thing is just go for it. You know, my advice to people who are maybe have a lot of self doubt, you know, or even people who are like, I don't know if I should enter this competition or things like, well, I didn't think I was going to win. So, yeah. you know, just do it. And you never know. I think there's probably a lot of people out there who, can be great film composers who don't believe that they can do it. So, and as far as, yeah, advice. Uh, so yeah, don't, don't gatekeep yourself. Don't uh, listen to what people say about your music on the internet either, because <laughs> mm -hmm. what I noticed is that people, when people do criticize music on the internet, it's usually tends to be people that aren't necessarily putting themselves out there musically, you know? So the people that are composers, professional writing music and stuff, they don't really criticize other composers' music. So just um, don't listen to it. And just the best judge of quality that I can figure out for music is if I like listening to what I wrote, then it's probably 
somebody else is going to like it too. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It takes a very, very it's one. a it's a very specific Venn diagram of uh, skills that you need to be a successful composer, and it's way more pragmatic than people think. And there's way less music theory than people think. Like the director doesn't care if you broke some rules that Mozart was using. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's one of those things like. You actually need to be really good at sending emails and you need to be really good with deadlines <laughs> and you need to be really good at working on like a team project, like a group project and mm-hmm. taking criticism. Like there's so many other oh, yeah. pieces to it and the actual writing music is in some ways a small part of the job. Yeah. Communication and being able to interpret non-musical forms of communication, you know, like Oh yeah, uh, that, uh, this feels blue to me. Yeah, yeah. Can you make it sound a little bit more purple? Yeah. And you're like, all right, I'm gonna bust out my purple rain guitar and I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna purple it up. No. <laughs> yeah, you have to be. You have to be a therapist. You have to. You have to be a, <laughs> communicate, obviously, but also know, be able to read people's reactions mm-hmm. um, to to know, like, you know, am I heading in the? Is this the right direction for what we need to do? Because otherwise, you'll just be doing, you know, revision after revision. So. Yeah. Or or just getting fired. Or just getting fired, yeah. yeah. And also the the other thing that really I think there's a myth of a lot a lot of people who are not really in the business of it's just like what the composer is like one person, you know, it's one guy mm-hmm. or one uh, one woman, and they're they're doing all the they're doing the whole process, and you realize now there's like there's like a huge team of people, you know, and you look at some some movies and there's like 20 people in the music department. Yeah. You know? yeah. And sometimes it's you know, just at least two or three, but you know, it's like super rare that one person just does the whole process, mm-hmm. not to mention the lawyer and the agent and the manager and that whole side of it too, you know? So yeah, a lot of moving parts. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to be, you have to be a manager in a way if you're the main composer. Mm-hmm. So that's why for me starting as an additional writer was like such a great thing because i needed to learn you know that whole mm-hmm. process of the team dynamic of it too i think being a, a successful additional writer is like one just really writing as if you you know you want the end result to be like as if they wrote it you know so mm-hmm. um and it depends like but typically they're going to give you themes you know from Anne will give me her themes that she's written and then from there it's up to me to interpret you know I mean, she'll even say sometimes, okay, this theme, I think, is this theme. This scene should have this theme. This scene should have this theme. But, you know, it's up to me to, like, fit it in, you know, and, and also, you know, what instrument should we use, you know, and... Uh, so you have a bracelet that says WWAD. What would Ann do? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Very nice. Because I always try to picture myself if I was in her shoes and I, I hired an additional writer. I want them to sound like me. I, you know, I want them... I want the music that I get back to be like, to have saved me time because yeah. it's not something that yeah, I have time to write the entire film, mm-hmm. but I want it to sound like something I would have done or, you know, obviously I want it to sound good. So the mock-up should be good. Also like don't bother the main composer with a bunch of questions that you can just Google and figure out yourself. So um, your goal is to make their life easier. That's the main thing. So as much as you can do is just turn in great music and make their life easier yeah, and I think the other things like stems helps to know the stem layout before so you can kind of plan ahead. Because when you write 10 cues and you didn't know what the stem layout is, now you have to go back and 
change all the routing and all the cues. I definitely learned for me, VE Pro was like a huge time saver. So mm-hmm. first film I did, I didn't use VE Pro and it really slowed things down because, you know, when you work with like one cue per session, yeah, every time you load a new session to print stems, you got to let, let all the samples load every time. So the VE Pro thing's nice. It just stays loaded. So, yeah. And I, I probably have a list somewhere of all the things I, when I first started, I wrote, I asked Ann a bunch of questions like, uh, what do I do with ense- ensemble patches? Cause she has, you know, violins, viol- like the stems are all broken down. Like where does this ensemble patch go? And on the string shorts, do I write with one patch or do I need to break it into violins? You know, all those different things and stuff like that. Orchestration questions, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So. A lot of composers do it differently. So it's not, there's not a blanket answer either. Yeah. Especially stem layout, I realized, I figured there'd be a standard, you know, like everybody would do it the same, but some people like things. And it also depends on how the mixing is set up. And sometimes it's like, uh, we did we did a, a Hallmark film and they were just like, eh, four stems, that's all we want. You know? oh, wow. so. so it's all about how they want things delivered. And also you realize, well, the more the more flexibility you give them is it's nice, but also can be a curse because then now they're mixing stuff differently than how you originally intended it. It's like mm-hmm. I have everything kind of blended the way the way I want it. So, you know, the last thing I want is all of a sudden now they just dropped all the strings out. And I mean, if it fits the film and that's kind of what it needs to be, then that's fine. But you know, it's just like you hate for your mix to get totally like screwed up. Mm-hmm. It's because somebody was not paying attention or can you can you talk a little bit about the process of how you how you began the process of sort of getting your setup similar to hers as far as like I know like you mentioned the V Pro thing and and that sort of stuff, but like you know, any learning curves as far as that went, as far as like trying to kind of like mimic her setup for yourself at home and being able to have that sort of similar sound. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so at the beginning I was like, okay, I'm going to have the exact same setup as Anne. And luckily I have a lot of sample libraries at this point. So I had almost everything that she had. I think there was a couple of samples, things I didn't have. Uh, I didn't have this the Olympus choir. So I got that because mm-hmm. um, she uses that one a lot. I would start out just importing her MIDI into my template and then re kind of making it work because, you know, you can't just open it and stuff, uh, doesn't link up and everything. So you have to kind of like re rework it. And I think it's, it's good to be able to have a similar sound, but I realized, you know, a lot of times if you, if you're just duplicating the same stuff, then you're not really bringing your own creativity to it. You know, you're, you're, Mm. especially if you're just copying and pasting MIDI, then it's like, well, you could just, a music editor could do that because now I'm just taking the same thing and just, you know, it's going to sound exactly the same. Um, So I think it's important to have, it's somewhat important to be able to produce the same sound, but you don't have to necessarily. I think it's okay if it doesn't sound exactly the same because a lot of times it's, it's a totally different cue. I guess it's a weird answer, but it's good to have those instruments, but it's not a requirement. Like I can use you know, a different brass library than, than she does. And it, it's, it's fine. Some, some person at home is going to be like, wait a minute. No, 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 no. They, they, what they're using a 12 horn patch in there now, but the last cue sounded like six. Oh no, I can't listen to this. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, it's what you're most comfortable with using, you know? So yeah. you know, uh, she has a brass library she's using and I don't use that. I'm, I don't know that one as well. And so mm-hmm. if I try to write something with it, it's going to sound worse. And if I just use the one I know, then yeah, it's going to be better. So and, you know, at the end of the day, you know, most of these libraries now are pretty good. The The thing I wasn't sure about, you you never send your same session back to her for her to open up, basically. So mm-hmm. you don't have to have that whole thing. I do everything independently. Uh, I print my stems. I send them stems and, you know, that's it. So 
that's something that's good to know, I think, for people who are new to that. Yeah. So so when you're working on a queue and she sends you MIDI, is it just like she just exports MIDI from her project for like a main theme, just so you can kind of see how everything's sort of orchestrated and arranged? And then like, how do you work off of the MIDI when you're when you're doing that? She exports the MIDI um, and also the Cubase session is there too. So if you happen to work in the same DAW, you can just open the same project. project. But then it's the process of rebuilding. I want to make sure that I point those woodwind tracks to my woodwind tracks and my string libraries to, you know, so, Mm -hmm. so that initial process of wrangling stuff is nice, but a lot of times they'll like, I'll listen to it and I can figure out what's happening and I'll just, I'll just write something original, you know, based on those themes, but it's just faster to just start something else, you know, start something new with mm-hmm. the same themes, but, you know, in a different way or something like that. It just depends yeah. on the cue. Okay. So do you, do you kind of like take all that MIDI and like push it like further in the timeline and then kind of just use that as a point of reference and then sort of go back and then start composing exactly. using similar things? Yeah. Oh, okay. It's down there. And so I can pull, oh, you know what? This is a good spot for this cue. And okay. Another really good tip that I learned, um, I'll take the themes just the audio files you can put those along with the picture and you can kind of see maybe this would go here maybe this would work here even though you have to change some stuff but mm-hmm. that's another good thing to and it, that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with being an additional writer if you're a composer and you've written the first 20 minutes of the film you have all this material now and so when you write the next cue you can kind of be like you know what this thing i wrote here would be good here but maybe slower and you can use your time stretching and you can kind of figure out, you can even figure out tempo. Actually, this will be good slower. And, and then you can say, well, okay, this is great, but maybe just, I'm going to get rid of the brass. I'm just going to do a little string thing here, but with mm-hmm. this theme, you can almost storyboard out your whole scene using your other themes, you know, because at some point, you know, once you have your themes written, you're just, you're just extending that into the rest of the, the film. So yeah, that's a great that's a great time saver that I found of just, you know, rather than using all the MIDI, just first use the audio files from your previous, you know, cues. Yeah, because it's kind of like, you know, tipping out with the the music that it's already been written for the project specifically. So it's kind of like, oh, cool. And now you just kind of see, like, does this feel right? All right, cool. And then kind of build from there. That's yeah, it's a really good tip. Could you tell us about any opportunities you've had to use sound iron products? Yes, I have uh, a lot of the um, the ones I have are the the kind of the pitch percussion stuff. So like the circle bells and stuff like that. Nice. That was my uh, first purchase. And what I like about them too is um, I actually used on a, the horror film because you can, um, there's like all the sound designer patches too. So like there was one scene where there's like this glass room and it's like it uses kind of glassy sounds of, uh, it was another one of the circle bells. It was a, like imbibaphones maybe. Yeah, like the one where there's like a, a blown like glass a, or something. Yeah. Or, yeah. When, when Ann came on, she was talking about working a lot with sleigh bells. So I was telling her about winter bells. And we did some like loops and one shots of tons of different sizes of sleigh bells. Oh, yeah. To check that out. Shake's another good one for that because that thing is just like every kind of bell or shaker you could think of. It's like in that Yeah, David thing. Oliver went way, way yeah. crazy with it. Yeah, I have to check that one out because I'm always looking for good, like high end percussion, like a you know high high frequency percussion, like rather than just just like st- traditional shakers, you know, mm-hmm. other stuff to to change it up is nice. Absolutely. Could you tell us about a personal project you're excited about? Yeah. So I just finished writing um, 
there's going to be an album they're coming out and they asked me to contribute a track to it um a piece and it's it's for solo cello oh okay and um there's 12 different composers that are going to be part of it i think it's kind of a charity thing um that's going to be coming out yeah it's going to be recorded by a live orchestra um it's either going to be budapest or they're trying to actually get some sponsors to record it at air studios in london so nice um so I have the track already written, the piece, and uh, it's being orchestrated right now. I'm kind of working on that with an orchestrator, and um, hopefully that'll be recorded in January. If it's going to Air Studios, I'm definitely flying over there and <laughs> going to film the whole process because I just that would be amazing hearing you know my music played there. So oh yeah, of course. So yeah, I'm look really looking forward to that. That's awesome, man. And then the other stuff I do besides the music stuff is I still do some video production. Yeah. Um, uh, I do mostly focus on, you know, just a couple clients it's like orchestral tools is I still do a lot of marketing videos for them. So uh, Berkeley college of music, I started doing stuff with them. So I try to focus my video stuff on music companies mm-hmm. too. So it's still able to meet composers and do all that. Yeah. That's the cool thing about doing video stuff. That's tied in like like when i started doing interview stuff with composers it's kind of like it's yeah it's work related but it's like you're getting to hang out with these people that are like doing all this really cool stuff and you're just like picking their brain and it's like this is work but learning at the same time and it's just fun so yeah it's cool to kind of like keep it all within the same sort of atmosphere and it's good to hang out with jason graves that's always cool (laughs) i know i'm still jealous you bastard (laughs) uh well one thing i i thought was really interesting and uh i forget how long ago this was that you posted about it but when you posted about uh, a really big opportunity that you ended up passing up to still focus on trying to pursue work as a film composer and i thought that was really interesting about if you'd want to talk a little bit about that about like when you have an opportunity that almost seems like too good to pass up, but you kind of don't do it like a crossroads. Yeah. Like you definitely, it seemed like you hit sort of like a, a, like a, a crossroad for sure. It's like, you know, I could do this and it'd be very lucrative or pursuing what I really want to do. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you're, if you're wanting to be become a composer, like, and that be your full-time gig, you know, it's always the debate is like, okay, when do I, do that leap to do it full time. And when, you know, when, what is that process like? Cause you know, it's a lot safer sometimes to just have a regular, keep your regular job and, you know, didn't do that. So, I mean, I had a really, well have, but a successful video production company and business and like repeat clients and pretty much could just coast along and be happy and great gig and great career and everything. So like, why would I, change all that to, to, to you know to be a composer you know mm-hmm. so but after i won the westworld thing is like it really just gave me the push to just do it you know and so what i realized is my video stuff was here my music stuff as far as you know my amount of time spent is here so i basically realized i need to just do kind of a, this thing where the music becomes more and more my time and the video gets less so uh, but in that during that process, uh, I think it was a I think it was Jack in the Box commercials. One of my clients mm-hmm. does all the photos for Jack in the Box, and they wanted to do videos. They wanted to do commercials for Jack in the Box. That would have been like I don't know six months of just straight work of commercials. So it was like would have meant just completely tabling everything I was doing, other than just that. You know, no music, no no nothing. And so the pay would have been great. Would have been good for the video side of things. But yeah, it's just like sometimes you realize you know. 
you can't make decisions just based on money. You have to do, you never know when, when your last day is going to be. So, you know, yeah. do you want to spend it wealthy and unhappy or do you want to be happy and take less of those jobs? So that, that was kind of like for me and being an easy decision. So life's too short, you know? And I think somebody said, well, do commercials and then write the music, but well, how do you know that that's going to be the kind of music that they're going to like? And also it's necessarily not propelling my film music career forward. So Sometimes it's about saying no to things, you know, even for film and like taking a film composing gig, you know, is this really the right, the right gig for, you know, is this going to really do advance my career or is this give me the experience I want? And also do things that are going to advance your career that don't pay well, you know, so you have to think about that as well. Yeah, I, I agree. Cause there's, there's a, a time and place where I think knowing when to say yes and it's like, Hey, there's this opportunity. I can't pay you, but like you have to have that kind of gut instinct to know when it's an opportunity worth pursuing, even though you're not getting any kind of like compensation for it. That's what Craig says to me all the time. Uh, <laughs> when did I say that? <laughs> no, I was gonna ask you if it was a if it was a better fast food brand, would you be more interested? <laughs> you're like, I don't need Jack in a Box. I don't want to do nothing for them. No, yeah. Saying. Yeah, if it was Shake Shack, I'd have right. to think about that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a better burger. Black Angus or something. <laughs> yeah, well, it's funny. My assistant, he actually helps out with the photos for Jack in the Box now. And he, he's like, yeah, they, they don't eat, all that food is styled, so you can't even eat it. You know, it's got oh, all yeah. kinds of stuff in it, you know, for the for the photography. But mm-hmm. um, basically, the, the point of that whole story is just that people, people ask me, too, like, should I move to LA? Should I go to LA? Should I do that? And you know, the thing is, it's a lot to think about. Like LA is great, but if you get here and now you have to take jobs just to pay your rent and you're not able to write music, well, maybe it's better to stay where you are, write more music until you get to the point where, you know, you can come and make that your career. So that's the other thing is you have to think about, keep your overhead low. If you want to write music, it's helpful to, you know, don't get yourself locked into like huge rent payments and mortgages and all that stuff. Like, do I need to buy a wall of analog synthesizers and move to LA to become a film composer? Is that what I need to do? <laughs> Student loans. Yeah, I got to just get, you know. It's funny because I think about this sometimes, you know, when people go to school and they spend, you know, X amount of dollars on going to school and it's like, man, like you could have like really jump-started everything probably like using that money toward getting the gear like especially in this day and age because there's tutorials on everything now and it's just really a matter of like what are you willing to do to to make it happen you know teach yourself or or go take people out to coffee and pick their brain you know or or whatever like there's endless things because when it comes to school like in it everyone graduates now everyone's knocking on people's doors and you're just like everyone else again and it's like well i went to school and it's like that's the thing where it's like but it really i think it just it comes down to the person you know how they how they learn some people aren't very like jump into the mud and just figure it out. Some people need that structure. So I, I could totally understand both sides, but it, there's definitely no like one solid answer because that, that shit just does not exist. Yeah. That's the thing I always, I always think about is there's, there was a, an easy clear cut path, then everybody would be doing that same thing. But exactly. no, there's no, you could go to Berkeley and it could really help you and you could go and it not really help you. So I don't want to discourage anyone from, going to school, you know, and it can be, maybe that knowledge is what you need to take your music to that place and, or get you an opportunity and, or maybe, maybe not. That's, it's always a risk calculated risk in the end. Yeah. But the good news is that, you know, you can be 
45 years old, have completely two other careers and still, you know, luck into it later. So, you know, I was like, well, just be patient. And, and, uh, I mean, I have to tell myself that too. It's like, cause I'm like, okay, where's my, where's my movie? You know, where's my Marvel thing? You know, it's like, Oh, mm-hmm. hold on. You know, I'm only two years into this. So, you know, I just have to enjoy the ride and yeah, the longer you do it, stuff starts percolating and stuff's happening and starts happening at some point. So. Yeah. It's just like, like, like what you were saying earlier, just like putting yourself out there. I think that's the big thing. If you can overcome that, put yourself out there and just kind of like immerse yourself in that world and just really try to do it. Like something is bound to happen. Just pursue something, you know, and, and don't let people shoot you down or whatever. Cause that, I mean, there's people like that, that hear that from their families, like, Oh, you shouldn't do that music. There's no money in music, you know, go to school, be a doctor or whatever. And it's like, if that doesn't resonate with you, then you, you obviously know that's not the answer. And sometimes you might have to tell people, you know what, you don't know what you're talking about. And <laughs> I'm going to do this and I'll figure it out, you know, figure it all out. And, you know, listen to your gut, I think, at the end of the day, because you can listen to everyone else and they could steer you in completely different directions. So at the end of the day, you have to go to sleep and close your eyes and and deal with the things that are, you know, spiraling inside your mind. So it's like. Do you, man? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, so the rapid fire questions. The first one is best recent purchase under $100. I guess if I had to pick something, I would say uh, Metagrid Pro, which is uh, the control app for the iPad. Nice. Mm. I built a whole template. I think it's like $29. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I have a program now where I can click on if I just want to see my strings or just my brass and I don't have to scroll like crazy and all your macros and stuff like that. So yeah, I'll pick that. <laughs> I love uh, time saving. Yeah. Delete all those legato overlaps. Just select them all and just. Exactly. Yeah. That's the stuff I love about Metagrid. It's just like all those little stupid things of like time of less clicking and dragging and all that. Like, yeah. Cause my brain is already filled with too many shortcuts. I can't remember like control a, you know, F sharp, uh, F sharp, F 13, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Start being like, like Mike Peasley. At Sound Iron, he has his MIDI keyboard assigning certain MIDI keys to different shortcuts. Oh, yeah, like, there you go. Like, I, I've exhausted all these. Now I got to start using my MIDI controllers for <laughs> which I thought was really, really cool. And I didn't even yeah. really do that. Not a bad idea. Uh, the next one is favorite YouTube channel or podcast or TV show at the moment. Something you've been enjoying. Uh, well, I was blown away by Severance. So I have to go with that. Um, nice. Apple TV show. I think I've... Uh, I watched it once and I'm like on the last episode on my second watch through just the score, the story, the production design. It's just like the perfect show for, for me. So yeah, I mean, gosh, I, I would be surprised if it doesn't win the Emmy, but we'll see. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if they win something. Cause I feel like I'm always hearing people talking about that show and just like, yeah, you hear a lot of high praise. It's great. It's like a modern day twilight zone, basically. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I've watched the first two episodes and that's a great way to great way to say it. All right. My final question for you is what accomplishments or goals do you see yourself achieving in the next couple of years? What's next for David? Yeah, I just basically would like to continue writing additional music and getting more experience, getting more credits, um, you know, just building that that portfolio, because that's the main thing that, you know, when you're starting out is that people want to see that you've worked on some cool stuff. Yeah. What have you done lately? Yeah. And then, so they can hire you to to score their film, you know, as the main composer. So it's, uh, you know, so basically getting more experience. Uh, I'd like to to land a couple films as the primary composer. So some indie stuff and stuff like that. And 
yeah, that's the main thing. Uh, video production, I, I, I enjoy my collaborations uh, with orchestral tools and I enjoy that and like to continue that. And hopefully you do a few more, uh, you know, a few more YouTube composer interview kind of videos just every once in a while, but not, not being a YouTuber, but just, uh, just engaging with, you know, the audience and stuff like that's fun and meeting mm -hmm. composers. But yeah, I mean, I pinch myself every day that I get this opportunity, you know, at this stage of my life to, to try a new thing. And I never feel like I'm going to work. So that's that's a good feeling. As long as I keep having that, then I'm happy. That's a win, man. That's a win right there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Well, thanks so much for coming on. This was a blast. And we will send people to your website and your YouTube channel uh, to check out composers out of the studio. So you'll hopefully make some more of those for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just for you, Nathan. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, he's your biggest <laughs> fan. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It was great chatting with you guys. Absolutely. We'll have to have you back on in a couple of years. You'll have uh, some crazy show or movie that you're that you're going to tell us all about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, David. We'll catch you soon, man. Thanks. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks again, all dude. Right.